Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 28th, 2018, and this is episode 2301, 2301 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show. That is the monster show of the week. I don't know if you can hear in the background there, but my granddaughter seems quite excited about it. She should be because this is going to be a great episode. I don't know there's much in it that will interest her. I think there's tons of in it that will interest you. How about making a Christmas mead? With Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, staying healthy when you're overseas with Gary Collins of The Simple Life, uh, putting together a veterinary first aid kit for the homestead from Dr. Kelly. Why is Ethereum doing so much worse than Bitcoin and other crypto right now with Ben Fitz of Crypto Gulch? Why are you better off with a, a three-phase charger than a trickle charger with Sean Mills, who we had a great interview with yesterday? Extending fall and winter gardening with Jeff Lawton. And I'll weigh in on that one a little bit myself with some more general comments than the ones specific to the individual Jeff's talking about. And planning a home and outbuildings on a new homestead with me, myself, and I, Jack. I'll talk about that a bit today. We'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's take a look at a year in history. We're up to the year 156 A.D., David Verne has a short entry for us at tspwiki.com. In 156, we have an aging emperor, contributed by David Verne. Antonius Pius, the current emperor, turned 70 this year. He began suffering from the effects of old age and was unable to stand upright without splints of wood bound to his chest as a primitive form of a corset. He also started eating dry bread to stay awake during, awake during meetings. More administrative duties were taken on by his heir, Marcus Aurelius. My, may you, uh, my take by David Verne, may you live in interesting times is supposedly an ancient Chinese curse, uh, though the origin is debated. The origin of the phrase doesn't tarnish the truth in it. The reign of Antonius Pius is considered the golden age of the empire, Mainly because nothing happened. The empty pages of history are the best times to live in. I think they are from this period of time. I really do. Um, in this period of time, things got written down usually when things really bad happened or when people were in war. If you look at the history of Rome in this time period and prior to it, uh, most of the in-depth things are really about uh, battles, whether won or lost. They're about, they're about warfare. And conquering, and one person conquering another, and people killing each other, and people killing emperors, and what have you. And there is some historical record of some of major accomplishments in construction or things like that. But one of the things that is largely absent from this period is new inventions, new stuff. Uh, humanity got to a point where. If you were the ones that won the war, you could live pretty comfortably. And innovation just didn't really kick up again for quite a long time, as we'll see as we continue through history here. Uh, that's an interesting, and that, that actually, to me, changes the dynamic of this, this uh, proverb, or this curse, as it's called. May you live in interesting times. Um, 
I think that it's good to live in interesting times if the times are interesting for the right reason. Um, I think it is a very good time to be alive right now. And while I'm, I'm, I'm displeased with some of the places we still insist on dropping bombs, um, I do think the times are quite interesting, and in some cases for very good reasons. And uh, in a day and age where everything's being recorded, some of the history that's being recorded now will be quite interesting, I think, in the future. Some of it will probably be boring if it involves Kim Kardashian's ass or something like that. But otherwise, I think this is a hell of an interesting time to be alive in, and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Because this one was so short, I wanted to just bring up the day in history today, because I think this is a... For baseball fans and sports fans in general, I think this is really a cool a cool day. I'll admit that I am not the baseball fan today that I was when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid in the 80s, I collected baseball cards, and my friends would meet. We would trade. We went to card shows and stuff like that. And I really dug baseball back then. And what I really dug about baseball, even in the 80s, wasn't so much the current players, though I was a pretty big fan of people like Wade Boggs and Don Mattingly, was the old players that weren't playing anymore. The Mickey Mantles, the Ted Williams, etc., that type of thing. Even going back to like Babe Ruth and all. And as you know, a historical card collector, that's something that you'd kind of get into. And that was kind of the heyday of baseball cards too, by the way, 1980s. That's when people figured out they were worth something, and maybe they thought they were worth too much, but it was kind of the heyday. It was like the, the high tide line of baseball cards, I guess. I know they're still around today, but man, 1980s, we didn't have we didn't have all the gadgets you guys had today, so there was something to it. Um, you played a game on your Commodore 64, you had to put three different discs in and wait for like 20 minutes for them all to load. So I guess we had other things to do while we were waiting for that game to load. Um, but Ted Williams has two things from this day in history for September the 28th. And they're both really cool, I think, anyway. And I think Ted was a class act. I think that like, that's part of why I still have nostalgia for baseball and football back in these days because the men were men of character. They really weren't. They didn't get paid anywhere near what they get paid today, even in their money. But in 1941, on this day, September the 28th, the regular season ended, and Ted Williams, in 1941, was the last major league player to end the season with a 400 batting average. No one else has ever done it again, including Ted himself. It's considered almost impossible that it would ever happen in this day and age because of how many more games they play and how much better pitchers are and things like that. Uh, there are actually players who retired with a 1,000 batting average, which means a perfect batting average. However, they didn't they didn't have enough bats. Like so, so maybe they got into the game two or three times and they got two or three hits, and then uh, they went back to the minors or whatever, and they just weren't good enough to, to stick around, even though they got a few hits. Uh, but in general, uh, no, 400. In fact, you know what a, a a the league average? These are the best baseball players we can find. 255. That's the MLB league average is 255, when everybody says, which is about 25.5% of the time they get a hit. One in four is considered good. Uh, 200 is considered like, eh, you go below 200, you're not, you're not going to be around anymore. Um, but in 1960, so Ted Williams, it's a 400 season in 1941. On, in 1960, Ted Williams is still playing baseball. And on the same day, September the 28th, 1960, Ted Williams stepped up to bat for his last major league at bat before he tipped his hat and retired. And guess what he did? Home run. Home run on the last at bat. I hope that each one of you, in whatever your at bats are, 
when you finally decide to turn that page and go to a new chapter in your life, that you can end the same way. You, you, you really can't ask for much more than that. I just thought it was kind of a cool and inspiring way to open a Friday show. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get on into it then. Before we bring on uh, your fir our first expert council member, last reminder, tomorrow, 8 a.m., Central Standard Time, that's CST, which is 9 a.m. Eastern, right? And then uh, it will be 7 a.m. Mountain, and that means 6 a.m. for you guys on the left coast. If anybody's come from the left coast, well, the tickets for TSP 18 go on sale. Even though I'm doing like 10 more than I normally do, I think this one's going to sell out really quite quick within hours. So if you want to come, Make sure that you're prepared to log in to your MSB account. Uh, at that time, there'll be a link placed in there, and you can jump in and get on over to uh, to the sign-up page and sign up. Um, so that's it. That's the last I'm going to put a post out today, but on air, that's the last warning. And I think on Monday, when I come back with Monday's show, it'll be, hey, we sold out. I, there, there could be. A few available. Occasionally that happens. I just at the ten year type thing. I don't. I don't see it happening. Anyway, with that, um, you know, it's it's not quite October yet, which means since we're not quite October, the whole world is pumpkin spice, right? And and I'm gonna tell you a secret about all the pumpkin spice stuff. There's no pumpkin in there. Like a pumpkin spice latte. There's no pumpkin flavoring in this stuff at all. There's not nothing pumpkin about it. It's pumpkin spice. And it sucks. I mean, really, I, I'm sorry, yeah. Like, if somebody asks me, how do I make a pumpkin spice mead? Like, send me your honey, and you don't deserve to make mead. However, holidays are cool, and spices and certain things that root us in a holiday are cool. So what about Christmas? Christmas is coming, folks. Understand this. We come back. Will it be October 1st when we come back, or will it not? I'm not sure. Uh, no. Yes, it will. Monday, when I come back, it will be October 1st. We will be in what we would call in the business world Q Q4, the last quarter of the year. Christmas is Christmas is going to be closer than the Fourth of July was. Cool, huh? So Christmas is coming. What about a Christmas meet? Now Michael's going to give you an idea for a Christmas meet, and the the person asking the question wants to age it for a year and make like basically on a Christmas holiday make a batch of meat every year, and then from that point forward always have a Christmas meet. I'll come back with a quick meat recipe for a small batch. Where you can make Michael's or your version thereof, just like JR has asked the question wants to do. But you can also maybe this weekend make a small batch of mead. And yes, while you're making your mead that you're going to age, you will be able to sip the mead that you made at the beginning of Q1. Because making mead while sipping mead is so much better than making mead and waiting for mead a year. Anyway, Michael, with that, man, let's take it away. Hey, I rose up in the morning and I felt a dire need to dream away the dreary day and down the cup of mead. I threw the skin of honeybees from last night's round three. I took it for the honey that will cure my soul disease. <laughs> cure my soul disease with the finer taste of meads. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, your beekeeping pocket guide. I want to let you know I've got your questions for bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. And this one's the making of fine meads. It says, this is from JR from Oklahoma. 
It says, Michael, do you have a Christmas read recipe? Details, I'm looking for a Christmas mead to make each year and enjoy the next. Good point. When you're aging, makes a big difference. I would like to make it in a three to five gallon batch. Something that reminds you of the aromas of Christmas. The cinnamons, the nutmegs, the cloves, maybe even like apple pie. I'm taking down the road of a sizer. Thank you from JR of Oklahoma. All right, JR, it is time to be thanking almost three to six months in advance. Uh, it takes a good time to age for a good product. I like a year before drinking. Well, let's face it, small batches don't go well. And if you're doing a bigger batch, maybe it'll last a little bit longer. Uh, I like to let things to at least finish off after about three months and age to possibly six months. So, yes, now is a good time to start thinking about a Christmas mead, especially if you're going to get it all done in bottle and start drinking it about this time till about Christmas of next year. So we're going to make a five-gallon batch, and this is a great mead. It took a gold at the Orpheus Pagan Mead Fest in 2016 and a blue ribbon at the Laramie County Fair in Cheyenne, Wyoming in 2017. It smells like Christmas. And it tastes like an apple beer. So it's really nice, really good to get started. Uh, I will recommend that if you have an opportunity, look at YouTube, 52 Meads in a Year. Check out what I do there. It explains a lot of these processes, everything from yeast to vessels to brewing experiments, usually less than 30 minutes. So if you catch up 52 Meads in a Year, you're going to have a lot thing in there. And this recipe might even be in there. So we're, I'm going to boost this up because that was a one-gallon batch. We're going to boost this up for more aromas and higher flavors out of the, than the, what was in the one-gallon batch. So we're going to be doing what we call the apple pie braggot. Now, braggots are one of my favorite to make. The complex tastes are all over the charts with the flavors because of the grains mixing with the honeys and also due to using different types of juices. So, man, I'm going to get so many complex flavors in this, and it's going to smell just like Christmas and taste like an apple beer. And it's going to be so great, so clean, and so refreshing. Uh, you can serve this either warmed or chilled, up to you. Uh, I think both of them are very, you know, in the, in the wintertime warmed up. The smells are good. Warms you up after a good day of sledding. And, you know, something that maybe you're working out in the, out in the sun and you want to cool off and have a good apple beer, this would be a good one. Uh Make sure, of course, everything's clean and sanitized. We don't want a bad batch. Uh, I'm going to give you a list of items here that you're going to probably need. You're going to need cloves. You're going to need nutmeg. You're going to need cinnamon. You're going to need cinnamon sticks. You're going to need allspice. You're going to need vanilla beans. And you're going to need vanilla extract. You're also going to need about five gallons of apple juice. And you're going to need about 16 pounds of honey. So let's go ahead and get started on the whole mixture all the way around. We're going to grain the apple juice. So first off, in your carboy, get a six-gallon carboy. Those are usually about how big they are because you're brewing about five gallons. Now what we're going to do is we're going to pour in eight pounds of honey, and we're going to also dump in approximately 48 ounces of apple sauce. And we're going to have a sit in that carboy for a little bit. On the side, you're going to go ahead and start boiling three gallons of apple juice and putting in 1.5 pounds of light crystal crushed malt grain. Any type of light crystal malt grain will be good. Uh, just try to get a light grain, about one and a half pounds crushed. Hang that in your muslin bag or cheesecloth or grain bag. 
and get it about two to three inches off the bottom of the pan and get the boil rolling hard in that apple juice. And boil that apple juice with the grain in it for 24 minutes. Pull that out, and then I want you to really squeeze that bag and get all the juice out, all the grain, all the stuff. And your apple juice should have turned to a dark color, you know. It should have went from that nice uh, clear amber color to a dark brown now, and it should have a grainy smell to it. Uh, once we get all that out, we're going to take the grain out and throw it out to the chickens, or we're going to go ahead and make it into our mushroom garden. With the pot, we're going to dump that into the carboy, and we're going to take that grained apple juice and mix it with the honey and applesauce and get that all dissolved and mixed around. Now we're going to take another uh, eight pounds of honey, and we're going to boil it. We're going to boil the honey for about 30 minutes, and we're going to caramelize it, changing the taste of the honey. Now, I prefer to use clover honey, or I would prefer to use avocado honey for this. Uh, the caramelization in those two make great flavors on the back end, like, like something you want to put on pancakes. So I caramelize the honey, eight pounds of it, boil it for 30 minutes. Keep an eye on it because it will want to boil and grow out of that pan. So you want to keep control over it. After it's caramelized for 30 minutes, add that to your carboy. Now you have honey, caramelized honey, and your grained apple juice all in the bottom of that with a little bit of applesauce. When the temps reach about 80 degrees, I want you to go ahead and put in two tablespoons of cloves, three tablespoons of nutmeg, four cinnamon sticks, and a quarter cup of cinnamon, two tablespoons of allspice, four vanilla beans, and a quarter cup of vanilla extract. Get that all in there and get that all ready. And when it comes to vanilla beans and stuff, squish them out. Get them so they're activated and ready to go. Really get those kind of going. And same with the cinnamon sticks. Break those up into chunks and get them so they spread out inside the batch really well. Now, as your temperatures drop down to that 80 degrees, right, this is also the time to also pour in the rest of your apple juice. Fill that all up so that jug has about an inch to inch and a half of air space. Get all the apple juice in there. And then also go ahead and put in two sliced apples. Just slice them up, dice them up, stick them in there. And that's going to be for the finishing of the, the meat. Believe it or not, the fresh apples will bring out a fresh, crisp taste because we didn't cook them in with the rest of the honeys and stuff. So it'll bring out a good, fresh, fresh taste. Let that sit for 48 hours. And then I want you to dump in a pack of Red Star Yellow, the champagne uh, premier. And I want you to put that in there, give it a good jostle, and put your balloon on that. Let that sit for about three months to four months till activation is done, until you start seeing it clear up. When you pop that balloon off, smell it. It should smell like cinnamons and Christmas and all kinds of stuff flowing out of there. It should be really good for you. Uh, one thing to always keep an eye on is make sure that uh, when your adjuncts and stuff are in there, when you start filtering this all out and it clears out, Right? You want to get your adjuncts out before you cold crash, then cold crash it, and then sift it and see what you got. Before you add your yeast, always check your hydro, 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 hydrometer and your bricks meter to make sure you're getting your alcohol levels. This should come out at about 15 to 18%. Like I said, doing a six-gallon batch after you get your adjuncts, all the cinnamon and the must out the bottom, you'll get about five gallons of this. This is a super great Christmas mix, man. Um, you can do other Christmas mixes. Uh, one of them that I do is I do the apple juice. I use 15 pounds of honey, and I go in and I throw in about 15 fireballs, and I go ahead and I put in 25 uh, crushed up 
peppermint sticks. And it gets a cinnamon peppermint smell that's going really good. It's almost like drinking like shots of Fireball. Has a hot cinnamon apple. It's really good. It smells like Christmas as well. But I really think you'll like the apple braggot. That is a super good one. Like says so to be like an apple beer. Um, hopefully that helps you out for your Christmas time mead making. You can catch us on uh, was on September 29th at uh, Denver, Colorado at the Orpheus Pagan Festival. I've got a couple meads entered in it. I'm competing against 250 different mead makers across the world there. And also on that day, we will be making meads and the CBD THC mead at Neoteric Farms that day. If you're interested, you can contact us. You can always reach out at abfriendlycompany.com. Catch us here on the Survival Podcast Network or all over Facebook for the mead events that we're doing as well as beekeeping. I'm Michael Jordan, your pocket beekeeping companion. Hey, Buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect, man. Buy some small cottage industry stuff for a premium product. And reach out and help your fellow man. Because, man, one day you're going to need help, too. Sounds fantastic. Now, here is the mead that I'm going to give you that will finish in probably 40 to 45 days maximum if you do it on a small batch, one gallon, I think you will find it to be a wonderful mead any time of year, but I think you will find it to be just a beautiful mead to sip in that downtime, like around Christmas and then after Christmas before New Year's, etc. Uh, I, I named this vin Sinvin Gin. Sinvin Gin, which you might imagine, cinnamon, vanilla, ginger. It also uses three flowers blend, which is equal amounts of heather flower, chamomile flower, and elderflower. And that makes an incredible mead by itself used in a larger quantity than you're going to do in this. Um, I'm not going to give a full procedure for this. You guys know my small batch procedure. You can look it up. If anybody really needs it, tell me in the show notes, and I will find a video where I show you how to do it. But this is the three pounds of honey to one gallon method that I have, at least I think I have kind of evolved as my own thing. And when we do that, we do not make three gallons up in the beginning. We, we put, uh, we leave maybe a half a quart of headroom. We run our primary fermentation. When our primary fermentation runs out, we go into our secondary fermenter and we tap up with clean water, filtered water or bottled water at that point. Yes, it'll restart the fermentation. That's okay. We're going to make a fully attenuated, completely fermented out meat anyway. And if you do what I say, it's probably not going to restart much because you're pretty much going to be fully attenuated and just trickling off at the end anyway because we're not going to push the alcohol tolerance of the yeast anyway. Okay, so this is going to be a dry mead with a sweet finish. You can use any honey you want. When I first made it, I used a wildflower honey. The assertiveness of wildflower honey works great with this, but something like an orange blossom, the more delicate, would allow more of the flavors to come through. Here's how you do it. You're going to make a batch of basically kind of a light three-flowers blend mead. So you're going to use three pounds of honey to your water and some, some yeast nutrient if you want to. You're going to use two tablespoons of three flowers blend. That's not a lot. It'll put a little bit of bitterness to counteract some of the sweetness we're going to play with later. You're going to put that in your fermenter, all mixed up, and you're going to pitch your yeast, the cuvee uh, and Pasteur Blanc blend of yeast that are available uh, at Amazon through tspaz.com. You can look it up at tspaz if you want to. I'll throw links in for this stuff for you to make it easier if you need to track them down. Uh, so half and half on the yeast. 
and it's going to ferment very, very quickly. It, at, by about the end of a week, your heavy fermentation, it won't be done fermenting, but your heavy fermentation is going to be done. You'll have a pretty good trube at the bottom, you know, yeast cake at the bottom. You're going to now transfer it into a secondary fermenter. When you do that, one uh, vanilla bean split lengthwise, just put that in the fermenter. Um, about... Uh, about a tablespoon of ginger. You don't want to overdo the ginger here. You want it to play a background role. So about a tablespoon of shredded ginger. And then you want two Celion cinnamon sticks. C-E-Y-E-L-O-N, I think. Celion, true cinnamon. You don't want this, like, punch in the face um, cinnamon that you buy in a, you know, usually stuff you buy in a store says cinnamon. It's not cinnamon. It is a cinnamon-like bark from a different tree in a different place. True cinnamon or sweet cinnamon, two full sticks of sweet cinnamon. Break those sticks. You'll find, like, you'll know the difference right away. The, 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 um, I can't think of what you call cassia cinnamon. It was just the stuff that most people use to make cookies and stuff like that. If you go to break those sticks, they're very hard. If you go to, like, you can take a pair of scissors and you can easily cut true cinnamon. It's a much softer stick. So two full sticks, cut them up in smaller pieces, put all that in the bottom of your secondary fermenter, heat some water up to about boiling. And just coat it, just put enough in the bottom of the fermenter to, to get everything touched with the boiling hot water. That means anything that's on those things will be, you know, any kind of pathogenic, uh, not pathogenic, because it doesn't matter anyway, make it mead. Any kind of bugaboo, you know, nasty bacteria, something would taint your mead, uh, is killed. Then go ahead and just siphon your meat on it. Don't worry. You're not going to kill the yeast. That little bit of hot water down there, by the time you fill up, there's a buttload of yeast literally in that uh, that that wort that you're working with there, or your must, I guess you'd call it in mead. When you get that up, go ahead and top it up with that filtered water to the very top and affix an airlock and wait for it to clear. And when it clears, it's done. I'm telling you, it's done. You don't need a hydrometer. It's done. It's done. It's done. It will probably be done somewhere between 30 and 45 days from the day you make it. I actually recommend, though, that a few days, you know, let's say five days into it, six days into it, uh, sterilize a straw. You can still have a plastic straw anywhere but California. Sterilize a straw with hot water. Uh, stick it in there like a little wine thief. Take a little bit out. Take a taste of it. When you get the cinnamon and the vanilla and the ginger to the, the, the contribution you're looking for, if you leave it too long for a full 40 days or something like that, you could maybe get too much flavor in. Rack it again to a, it could be a tertiary fermenter, and finish it in there. So rack it off one more time when you're at the point where you you feel like you've got enough contribution. Uh, so if you made that on, let's say this weekend, if you made that Saturday or Sunday, which is going to be the 29th or the 30th of September, I cannot see it taking more than 40 days for it to finish. So at that point, by about November 8 or 9 at the latest, that means going to be ready to drink. It's not going to be aged. It can get better with age, but you're good. So that weekend, which actually is going to be, ironically, the week that everybody's here, so maybe if you come here, go home in the weekend of the 17th of November, bottle it. It's got a, it's got a month in the bottle before Christmas. So there's my pre-Christmas need. And if I were you, and I'm not, but if I were, and I was going to do this, this Spirico mead, I'd make two batches of it. And I'd lay one up till next year, and I'd make Michael's mead over the Christmas holidays while you sip this one, and then they make that your tradition, so you have a batch of those coming through. 
So then each, you know, let's say sometime in October or September, you make a Sinvin Gin for the Christmas holidays, and you have a young mead and an aged mead side by side, but then you also start pushing one of those batches around for a year. So now you got a young mead and two aged meads, and one of the young meads and one of the aged meads are the same. I think that would be a pretty cool holiday tradition, and it would let you actually experience what the aging does to the meat. And that's something many meat makers never do. Uh, they either age a meat or they don't age a meat. They don't tend to make the same meat again and drink it young next to the aged version. It's a, it's a pretty interesting and fun experience. And, hey, that makes the holidays more fun. So, anyway, let's go on to another one. And that next one is a question for Gary Collins uh, on overseas life, like if you're living overseas for a while, how do you stay healthy? Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where I discuss all things living off the grid, life simplification, RV living, primal health, even get into paleo, which uh, me and Jack are big fans of, and all things just making your life easier and better. Um, I know there's been a little confusion. I switched over my website, and I have a new book series called The Simple Life. We'll get into that a little deeper. Uh, I did that April, May, so a little different direction. I'm not just a health guy primarily anymore. It's more about uh, life simplification. Uh, the question today, and that is part of what I will cover, is, yes, my new book, The Simple Life Guide to Optimal Health, which I released in the end of April and beginning of May, is a replacement for my other books in a way. It's updated, has more information, new information. I just took out the primal paleo kind of out of the title. Um, it's kind of more of my own philosophy, but those principles are definitely in there. Uh, just kind of moving on is the best way to put it. So yes, the optimal guidebook is the new book, and it is the health book. There will be many more books to come in the Simple Life series covering various topics, so be on the lookout for those. And also my Living Off the Grid, my follow-up to Going Off the Grid, will be out early 2019. So hopefully took care of that question. Um, as far as, you know, I, I dealt with this. I traveled all over the world. I was in the military, federal law enforcement, um, did a lot of protection so what I did when I was on the road, and I actually just answered this question for someone yesterday in the military. So it's pretty ironic. Um, for those, those days, the chow halls can be pretty bad. Uh, you, you just kind of battle through it. You got to pick and choose your food. What I always did is I brought food with me. Believe it or not, and I'm not talking, you know, it was canned food like canned ham, canned chicken, stuff like that when I was overseas in, in areas where I wouldn't have access to food. So I just bring it over in my luggage, uh, back in the day. And I always brought protein drinks. I don't recommend those as a lifestyle choice. Some people go nuts and do nothing but drink protein powder drinks all day. Um, but it's a great substitute for those those days when you go to the chow hall and it is, it's pasta night or pizza night and it's nothing but carbs and junk. I would just go to my room and mix up a protein shake and if there was anything at the chow hall I could get, like maybe a little bit of chicken or salad, I would add that, and not to the shake, but on the side. <laughs> and uh, that's what I would do. Uh, and I always had 
almonds with me, you know, if I had access to apples, um, you know, because they're durable, easy to carry, carry protein bars with me when I was on the go. Like if I, if I was doing protection and we were driving around all day, didn't know where my next meal was coming from. I hope that helps. That's the best way to do it is have a contingency plan for your diet. Most people kind of just wing it and say, I'll just eat when I want to eat and I'll deal with it. If you do that, it's real easy to get off track. So you have to have kind of your staples that you always bring with you. Again, make sure to go to the new website, thesimplelifenow.com that replaced primalpowermethod.com. Just to clarify, so I've got a couple questions over the last week on that one. And make sure to go check out the new books, and I hope you enjoy it. Next up, I have a uh, question for Dr. Kelly. Uh, putting together basically a veterinary care bag, like a doggy and goat and cow and everything else first aid kit for the homestead. Dr. Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack. And all TSP listeners, this is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry animal inquiries. Today's question comes from Jacob. Question for Dr. Kelly, possibly Darby Simpson. What are your recommendations for a good homestead farm veterinary bag and training? I am currently raising a pair of dogs, sheep, pigs, and cattle. I already have a bit of supplies for dealing with abrasions and small cuts, as well as normal procedures like castrating pigs and cattle. I am confident administering medications via syringe and oral drench. I saw that ITS Tactical is coming out with a canine first aid kit, but haven't looked through it much. Okay, Jacob. I'm going to mainly focus on the small animal for this, although the majority is applicable to large animals, and I'll provide a few large animal comments at the end. There are a lot of materials that you can have on hand to be prepared for an animal emergency. I took a look at the ITS tactical kit, and I think it's a really good as a basic kit, especially as a portable one that you can throw in the car for trips or camping. So you've got dedicated animal supplies with you without taking up tons of space. Now, at home, if you have the room, there are some additional things that I would add to it. I mean, the first is basically just have more of what's in the small kit, especially more bandage material, gloves, wound cleaning supplies. Having extra of the cohesive bandage, you may also see it listed as vet wrap sometimes, is great because then you can change bandages if they get dirty. Foot injuries especially will get dirtier, and you can help prevent that by having plastic bags on hand to tie around the bandage each time they go outside. Um, a quick tip on the cohesive bandage material, if you haven't used it before, is to unroll it and then loosely re-roll before applying to the animal. And this helps prevent you from placing the bandage too tight. It also tightens further if you get it wet. So if a bandage gets damp, I'd change it. You can also check for bandage tightness on limbs by monitoring the toes. It's possible, if it's possible, to leave them out of the bandage. If the toenails start to spread apart from each other, then it's getting too tight and it needs to be removed and loosened. I would also add larger amounts of saline eye flush, both for the eyes and as a wound flush, and a betadine solution to dilute out for cleaning and soaking wounds. And you definitely want to dilute that stuff out as it can burn like crazy otherwise. Um, I like the hydrogen peroxide for removing dried on blood. It's great at that. Um, but for general wound clean, I prefer the betadine. 
Um, I personally think it's a good idea to keep an e-collar in any of the sizes that your animals may need. Um, I frequently tell owners in jest that the e-collars ward off evil since it seems like every time an owner goes one in this cleaning frenzy and pitches them out, then the pet you know, suddenly goes and injures itself and they need it. So you really can't underestimate the power of keeping a wound clean and just keeping the animal away from it so that the body can heal. Um, that also helps even if you had an injury and it was going to be a while before you could get to a vet, keeping the animal away from that is going to be, is absolutely key. Um, I do like to have Vetterson spray on hand to clean wounds too. Um, clippers can be great for cleaning wounds and removing hair from hot spots and things. Good ones can be more expensive, um, but they will work well. And even having some of the cool lube stuff to spray on them because they will get hot quickly. Um, and that helps to clean them off just because they'll get nasty. Um, you might consider having things such as like newspapers on hand to roll up if you needed to splint a leg until you could get it to the vet. Um, smaller things like tick twisters. They're a little tool that just slips under the tick and removes them super fast and easy. And it helps make sure you get the head out. Um, a thermometer, uh, normal in cats and dogs is 100 to 102. Um, silver nitrate sticks or quick stop nail powder in case of bleeding nail along with nail trimmers. Hemostats, um, I just love these little instruments for all sorts of household things that aren't even animal related, um, but they can be great for grabbing splinters and other debris if a tweezer just isn't working. Um, having a slip leash um, just is an emergency leash, but these can also be used as a muzzle in a pinch. Um, and speaking of muzzles, it's not a bad idea to have muzzles that fit your animals um, just already in the house. And if there is a true emergency and you need to do some sort of treatment before getting to a vet, I don't care if your pet is normally the sweetest animal ever, still do not trust that it wouldn't bite you if in extreme pain. I mean, I know I personally have almost kicked doctors for just injecting lidocaine into me, so I don't expect an animal to have any more self-control. Um, it's important to help our pets, but above all is keeping yourself safe in the process. So just don't trust that in the heat of the moment that they wouldn't act out in pain, because that's a whole lot to expect of an animal. And... Um, as far as other things to keep on hand, um, some sort of lubricant jelly. I'd have some that stays sterile that you can put in a wound prior to shaving to help keep hair out of the wound. And then some that isn't um, isn't necessarily a sterile one that you can just use for th thermometers and things. Um, as far as stuff for really bad incidents, the like things like the SWAT T tourniquet bandages, they can be useful, although most dogs and cats don't have the same muscle and meat on their limbs that people do. So you can often just do a regular tight bandage and that can provide enough pressure with that to help stop bleeding, even in bigger wounds. Um, something like sucking chest wounds. I mean, there are patches that can be used in people. I think old grouch surplus even had some of these at one point that can be helpful in a dog. Um, the downside is that with all that hair that's on an animal, these aren't going to adhere well to the skin and you're not going to get a tight seal. Um, and so, and often there isn't time or the materials needed to shave the area for something like this. So applying enough sterile lube or petroleum jelly under it can help form a seal. And then you can wrap over it with an ace bandage or something to get that tight suction seal to it. And in lieu of having a specific patch, you can even use saran wrap if you had to. And I mean, like I said, these are for things that are really, really bad. And you just hope that you never have to do this, but it's the whole goal of it is just to try and provide enough of a seal so that you can get to the ER so that the animal can even make it there. 
Um, speaking of ERs, it's a good idea to have a list with phone numbers of local ERs, and you want to update this for any trips you may be taking with your pet. If you travel frequently with your pets, consider keeping copies of medical records with you, especially if they have any medical medical conditions that require special care or that are not as common. Another phone number to have is poison control. The best one is the ASPCA poison control because they have vets on staff that once you've called and you've paid the fee for your animal for that incident, it's assigned a case number. And then your vet can use that case number to talk to their vets even multiple times if they need to about that same incident so that they can get guidance on treatment. Um, this becomes especially important with some of the human medications that an animal might accidentally eat and stranger things like that, where it's not commonly known in animals, you know, what the side effects may be and that sort of thing. Now, the phone number for that poison control is 888-426-4435. And there are some books and resources for owners that can be helpful. The first is First Aid and Emergency Care by Roger Gefeller. Uh, DVM and a diplomat of the Emergency and Critical Care Society, along with Tom- Michael Thomas and Isaac Mayo. Now, it's not, this book is not as easily accessible on Amazon, although you can find some used copies, but there is an online version on a site that I really like for owners, which is veterinarypartner.com. Um, I've included the link in my email to Jack for the book, um, this, that's online, and this has both large and small animal info in it. And then for small animal onlys, there is a book called The Pet Lover's Guide to First Aid and Emergencies by Dr. Thomas Day. And that one is easily available on Amazon. Now, as far as large animals go, the same basic supplies are useful. Gloves, thermometers, dewormers, halters, electrolyte mixes, hoof trimmers, bandage supplies. I mean, I'm sure some of the other experts who are raising large animals... um, have some suggestions of their go-to supplies that they always have on hand. And, you know, especially if you're having calves and having your breeding animals and that sort of thing, you want any supplies that are needed for birthing and that kind of stuff too. So if you're using the, the biggest thing, um, if you're using any topical sprays, you want to make sure that they're labeled for food consumption or dairy use if you're using your animals for these purposes. And the most important thing to remember for large animal work, especially if it is for animals used in food production, is that you have to consider withdrawal times of medications. Some medications, especially antibiotics, would make the animals unfit for consumption at all or at least for a certain time period. So you want to pay attention to this to keep yourself safe and to protect your farming business with that. And something else you could consider having is a copy of the Merck Veterinary Manual. Now, it's designed to be used by veterinarians, um, and it's not what I would consider my go-to manual in day-to-day clinical practice. It does provide good basic info, though, and like I keep mine at home in case I need a quick reference. Um, It has both large and small animal info, and it gives reference guides for normals like temperature and heart rate in animals. And like I said, it's made by Merck. You know, it's made by a drug company, but they do have a lot of good information in this book. Now, I will give a word of caution about this one, though. While it's awesome to have well-informed owners who play an active role in their pet's health care and are educated about it and acting as an advocate for their pet, you don't want to scare yourself. And diving into this book is a bit like WebMD. And you know what happens on there. We have a runny nose, we get on WebMD, and the next thing we know, we're saying, oh my God, I have a nasal tumor. 
And while that could be, the reality is more like, dude, it's probably a sinus infection. So um, just don't get too freaked out by it. And remember the dictate of it may be possible, but is it probable when you're reading? And always consult with your veterinarian when possible to help ensure the best outcome for your pet. Thanks for your question, Jacob. And remember all, while I am a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. So my guidance is only intended to give you some ballpark info in general so you can discuss with your veterinarian your concerns more effectively and what you can likely expect from their official treatment recommendations. If you'd like to learn more about me, check out champagneandmudboots.com. For insights into my life as a working and homeschooling mama, homesteader newbie, and caregiver of 15 or so various animals. Thanks, Jack, and hope everyone has a great week. Bye. You know, I'm I'm really amazed at the quality of people that we find over time to add to the expert council. Uh, Dr. Kelly is outstanding. Sean Mills, who we've just added, is outstanding. Um, it, it's it's kind of just really again humbling uh, over the years is the word I used over and over again at the uh, the, the amazing community uh, that is coalesced and, and the sub communities that have coalesced around. Uh, the Survival Podcast. Remember, guys, if you want to ask a question to Expert Council, that's why they're here. Uh, you can meet the entire Expert Council uh, by going to the Meet the Expert Council page. You'll find it in the About tab uh, pulled down, and you can uh, check out everybody and see what they have to offer. I have Expert Council members that are piking, but I also have Expert Council members that need questions, so get them into me, TSP Expert, in the subject line, and uh, we'll get them over to them. With that, we have another question. This one on cryptocurrency. Uh, with all the bloodbath in cryptocurrency this year, it, it's not quite as exciting, I guess, uh, not as many questions about it as there was last year when everything was hunky-dory. This is a question for Ben Fitz on why Ether seems to be performing worse uh, than uh, Bitcoin does. Ben, take it away. Hi, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. And we had a question that came in which was directed to me on Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency and mining specifically, and that came from Nick in Mongolia. Nick asks, do you have any clues as to why Ethereum seems to be dropping more in relative value compared to many other non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies like Dash or Monero? Is this really all about the various token projects panic selling Ethereum, or is there a serious problem in the wings that GPU miners should be aware of? And Nick goes on to tell me a lot about his background mining, and he's mostly mining Ethereum. He can even do so profitably at lower prices because he lives in Mongolia where power is cheaper. And he's, he wanted to know about mining other currencies like Monero. There's, there's a few different aspects to this question. Number one is, what is your purpose in mining, Nick? Are you mining for profitability? Then you have to look at whatever is most profitable today to mine. That may or may not be Ethereum. And gradually that's becoming less likely that it's going to be Ethereum as the Ethereum uh, is making changes to their blockchain. They're going to lower the reward size from three to two. That means that every 20 something seconds when an Ethereum block is found, when miners mine an Ethereum block, that there's going to be less Ethereum in that block which means the rewards paid out to miners on that pool is going to be smaller. You're doing the same amount of work, but your reward is going to go down. That's going to be happening soon. I, I believe at the end of the month is when uh, Ethereum is making that upgrade. Um, you'd have to double-check the dates. I don't know exactly off the top of my head. 
That's one of the reasons why I'm mining Ethereum Classic instead of Ethereum, by the way, is because they're not lowering the block rewards and they're not planning to go to proof of stake. They're planning to stay proof of work, which is for miners. Ethereum plans to go proof of stake. So let's say you're mining because you want to accumulate as much Ethereum as you can. That's a valid reason, you know, and just mine Ethereum and accumulate it so that when it goes proof of stake, you'll have as much as you can. However, some people are not in that situation. They need to sell some of their crypto to pay their bills. Other people believe that the best thing to do is to mine whatever is most profitable and then exchange it for the currencies that they want to hold. And they look for value when they're buying those currencies and they feel that they can maximize their earnings by doing that. Of course, I hope these people also realize that every single one of those transactions is a taxable event. When you mine the coin, when you trade the coin for another currency, and uh, vice versa, all that stuff is, is taxable events. So I hope they're tracking that and keeping those taxes in mind when they're trying to save a few pennies here and there. So really, Nick, what you do with your mining rigs depends on what 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 your goals are. Are your goals to accumulate Ethereum or is your goals just to make as much profitable today or are you speculating for the future? As far as the Ethereum price, the Ethereum price has been dropping. It has been dropping because the ICO projects have to sell their Ethereum to pay their bills. You know, if they raised money to create a business, you know, whatever that business was, then they have to pay employees, they have to pay web developers, they may have to pay for office space and other things. They may have to buy software and hardware and things like that to host their platform. All of these things cost money, you know, legal and, and accounting and everything, especially if they raised money last year. You know, there's a well-known project right now that's being sued that raised $12 million worth of Ethereum last year. That went up to 70 million, but today it's worth only 3 million. And they never started on coding the stuff that they were supposed to code. <laughs> so they're being sued. That's definitely a factor. Another factor is you have other competing projects out there. You have EOS, so people can create applications on the EOS platform instead of Ethereum. So some people might be interested in doing that. So that's causing less attention to go to Ethereum. Since there aren't as many ICOs happening on Ethereum, you have less people buying Ethereum to get into these ICOs. So you have more of the faithful, you know, supporters of the Ethereum uh, network that are the ones buying and holding Ethereum today. There's not as many applications coming out for it. Having said that, I think the Ethereum team is one of the best teams around and they've proven that they can create what they say they're going to. So if you look at what they've got planned for the future of Ethereum, it's really bright. And I think that that network is going to be able to support a lot of transactions. It's going to be able to support much bigger applications built upon it than Ethereum can support today. When we've had killer applications come out for Ethereum today, even games like CryptoKitties crash the Ethereum network. As the Ethereum network grows and, and the new version of Ethereum comes out, which can support, you know, up to 15,000 transactions a second, 
you're going to see a lot more applications be developed for Ethereum. And then more people are buying Ethereum and the price of Ethereum goes up. More people are using Ethereum, etc. Right now, less people are using Ethereum, less people are buying it. So the price is going down. It's that simple. I also want to point something out. Ripple. Ripple last week took over the number two place in coin market cap and took over from Ethereum. Guys, Ripple is a scam. When are you going to realize that? If you're getting into Ripple, then you're purely doing it for speculation, and I don't want to talk to you. You know, you're getting into Ripple because it's worth 40-something cents, you think, and maybe it'll go up to $10 someday, and you'll be rich because you can buy so much Ripple for 43 cents. Well, guys, 100 billion Ripple exist. Over 70 billion of the 100 billion are controlled by a few individuals, by Ripple Labs and by the founders of Ripple. Yes, Ripple Labs locked up 50 million or billion Ripple in escrow. That's half of all that will exist that they own. No bank is going to use Ripple, guys. That's what they say it's for, but no bank is going to use Ripple because they're not going to invest in a project where over half of the tokens are held by a few individuals. And what makes Bitcoin valuable, one of the things that makes it valuable is the scarcity of it. There's only 21 million that will exist. There's 100 billion Ripple that will exist. So the scarcity factor is not there of Ripple. So, guys, when you see the news that Ripple overtook Ethereum and, and some people get scared and, and they want to sell their Ethereum, insanity is what I call that. That's insanity. Um, that's people that are doing it for greed and they're not really uh, looking into the fundamentals of what Ripple is and how big of a scam Ripple is. So, having said that, um, I like Ethereum a lot. I think Ethereum is really good. Long term for the future, the developers are very slow and deliberate. That will probably delay Ethereum. From a mining perspective, I don't think Ethereum is a very good project to be mining. As I said, they're going to be lowering the rewards. They're going to cut it by one third. It's going to go from three to two. So um, Ethereum is going to be less and less rewarding for miners. You want to look at some of the Ethereum clones like Ethereum Classic. If you have AMD cards, you want to look at the Monero clones. There's quite a few of those right now that are doing really well. Uh, Loki just came out with their service nodes the other day, their master node project. And so that's really big for them that, you know, they've gone from beta to live and it's proven that their team can actually do some of the things that they said they were going to do. You have BitTube, which is a YouTube clone. It's a Monero based blockchain. Uh, that's something that's really interesting that's hot right now. There's a couple other ones. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's, but there's several other ones. And of course you can also get into Monero itself. I mean, that's a good one for AMD cards. If you have Nvidia cards, you're looking more at the Ethereum clones like Ethereum Classic. Again, I'm mining Ethereum Classic today. I'm also mining Ravencoin today. Ravencoin's another speculative one that right now we're kind of looking to see what the next big thing is going to be, what the next big coin is going to be. That's how I'm treating it because today, you know, mining is not as rewarding as it used to be. 
because, you know, Ethereum's declining and things like that. That's one of the major projects we used to mine. Um, so look at the other options that are out there. There's quite a few. Another Ethereum clone that's out there right now, which kind of just came out and is attracting a lot of attention, is Dubai Coin. Now, it's not backed by the country, but it is targeting that market. And so that's a project that's got a lot of people interested. It's still really small, really new. Who knows if it's legit? I don't know if it's legit. I think you can only trade it on, like, Cryptopia. That's not on a lot of exchanges or anything, but that's getting a lot of attention right now. Um, Ethereum Classic, as I said, and there are others. I definitely encourage you, if you're a miner, you want to be looking at some of these other options. Again, the end of the month, Ethereum is making big changes, and the rewards are going to go down, in addition to the fact that the price has been going down. So I'm Ben Fitz, and this has been an expert council question. Thank you for having me on the show. All right, so uh, next up, I have a question for new expert council member Sean Mills on trickle chargers. And Sean's going to tell you why you probably don't want to do that. Sean, take it away. Hey, everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. I've got a small adjustment to my last answer that I sent in, as well as a new question to answer this week. So on September 14th on the Expert Council show, I was talking about putting lithium batteries in the monitor that goes into the freezer because it works better in the cold. And I said lithium-ion batteries. Uh, Joe came on and mentioned in the blog that lithium primary batteries are the ones that we want to use, similar, such as the Energizer Ultimate Lithium, not lithium ion. He's exactly right. Uh, a lithium iron disulfide battery, which is a lithium primary, uh, which means a primary battery is not meant to be recharged. It can work down to about negative 40 degrees. Whereas a lithium ion, which is secondary, which means it can be recharged, uh, does not work very well at colder temperatures, just like an alkaline battery. Uh, so my mistake, I apologize if you guys went out and got a in-loop battery or some other lithium ion and stuck them in your freezer alarm uh, device that's inside the freezer. Please take that out and replace it with a lithium primary battery. Uh, that's going to give you the best and longest life at those colder temperatures. So with that being said, John sent in a question. He actually sent it in for Stephen Harris, but... Uh, Stephen is busy with Citizens Assisting Citizens right now, so Jack kicked it over to me and asked me to answer John's question. Jack says, can a trickle charger be used under specific circumstances? If so, which one? I would like to use a trickle charger as the primary charger for float slash maintenance charging of my batteries. I have several chargers in various sizes ranging from 15 to 55 amps. I would like, or I would use the big chargers for bulk and absorption charging, then switch to a trickle charger for the float charge so as not to burn out my big chargers. Stephen had mentioned in the podcast or the videos that he had fans go out on his chargers. So, hey, John, I understand your question. Before I get into the meat and potatoes, uh, let's cover what those different charge cycles are for the rest of the audience. Bulk, absorption, and float charging are your three phases for charging a battery. Bulk charging is going to have a lower voltage but higher amperage. That's where you're really pumping that electricity into that battery. That's going to get us within about 20% 
of uh, the total capacity of the battery. At that point, we're going to switch over to absorption charging. Absorption charging is going to have higher voltage but lower amperage, so we're still pushing it in, just not quite as hard at a higher voltage, and that's going to get us within a couple points, couple percentage points of topping the battery off. At that point, we move on to the float charge. The float charge is going to have an even higher voltage, but a much lower amperage. And so what this is, it's really just floating that power in there. The battery's taking it a lot lower rate than it was in either of the other stages, but that's how we get to that 100% battery charge state. Now, what a trickle charge is meant to do, what a trickle charger does, is once we're at 100%, the trickle charger recharges the battery at the same rate that the battery discharges itself when it's not being used. So if I've got a snowmobile and I charge the battery up to 100% at the end of the season and I park it in my shed because it's not snowing anymore and I want to use that same battery next fall when it starts snowing again, some people will take and put a trickle charger on there. Well, a lot of the people that have done that have learned the hard way that a trickle charger is dumb. Okay, trickle charger is just going to put that little bit of energy in whether the battery needs it or not, and it's probably going to end up messing your battery up. Um, a three-stage charger is a much better idea if you're really concerned about keeping that battery at 100%, because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about not ever letting it get below 100%. That's the only time we would use a trickle charger. If you've got a reasonable uh, need to keep it at 100%, you can use the trickle charger, but I would say you better be going out there and checking that thing regularly. Uh, you will overcharge the battery and cause a lot more problems with that trickle charger overcharging the battery than it would if you just went out once a week or really even once a month with that three-phase uh, charger with the microprocessor and just got it back up to 100. If you get that thing up to 100 once a month or, or if you're really, really concerned once a week, you're going to have a very good, well-conditioned battery that's at 100% most of the year and the, uh, the, the possibility of that battery going bad when you treat it that way is a lot less than if you leave it on a trickle charger year-round. So specific answer to your question is, yeah, you can use it, um, but you're probably going to lose more batteries than you're going to lose chargers because of fans burning out. And a lot of those chargers are on warranty. So if you've got a fan burning out uh, you know, during normal use, uh, you can probably do a warranty claim and get that thing replaced. So I do agree with Stephen here in that uh, trickle charges are dumb and they should not be used unless necessary. And probably where he and I uh, differ is going to be that there are times uh, where you may really need to keep that battery at 100%. Maybe there's some sort of special electronics um, that, that doesn't work properly if the battery isn't. I'm not familiar with a lot of those uh, systems, but I'm, I'm sure that there's something somewhere uh, where a trickle charger might be the way to go. But for 99% of everyone out there, uh, just using a standard three-phase is going to be your best bet. 
Hey, John, thanks for sending the question in. Guys, if you got any more questions, you can send them over to Jack with TSPC Expert in the subject line. You can email me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at HackMySolar.com. Comment on the blog or the Facebook group. I'm on there pretty regularly, and uh, I'll be happy to answer your questions there as well. Well, hey, as always, uh, thanks, and I'll be looking forward to talking to you guys next time. And next up, I've got a question for Jeff Lawton from Jake in Tennessee on extending seasons. And he's got some pretty specific things that he sent to Jeff uh, as far as the layout of his property and what have you. Uh, well, next, then I'll come back and give you some kind of general thoughts blended in with my question that's more on setting up a new homestead. Uh, with that, Jeff, take it away, man. This is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from the lowest place on earth, 400 meters below sea level in the Dead Sea Valley on the Jordan-Palestine border. Okay, um, this is a answer or a bit of advice um, for a gentleman called Jake Robinson who wants to put in a full winter garden and um, he's sending some information about the site and it's a, a tight space up against buildings And I think um, what I'd be looking at, it'd be taking advantage of the thermal mass on the buildings because there is a, a block wall up against uh, most of the garden spaces and uh, seeing whether you can gain a bit of extra thermal mass heat and um, set up some kind of uh, glass house, um, even though it may be temporary or plastic house that could be put up over that area um, to extend the garden into the winter um, we always talk about how we start early but how we finish late is just as important so you can get extra uh, production later in the year by by gaining that extra protection um, with um, just a polytunnel type plastic uh, with some hoops or some uh, some glass panels even if they're temporary um, I'd be looking at putting down um, plenty of compost, um, get some good compost in there. Um, maybe go through and, um, if it's a bit compacted, um, go through and broad fork it first, but don't turn it upside down. I just, I just prise it and loosen it. Um, say every six to eight inches, ten inches. Um, sink the broad fork in as far as you can. Pull it back until you see a sort of a prising and easing of the clod in front of the broad fork and then come and repeat that right across the bed. Um, then go through, uh, put some good quality compost down, um, nice and thick, because um, it's a, a sort of new garden area, and get into production straight away. Now, I'd be going for um, uh, kale, uh, collards, um, some of your um, cabbages, um, I don't think you'd have... I'm not sure about your frost regime there. Uh, you might get a quick crop of, of potatoes in. Um, you're obviously going for, for crops that are going to be cold hardy. Uh, you might get Brussels sprouts, um, broccoli um, and um, cauliflower, um, that type of thing. Uh, but your kale varieties will go a long way into winter, um, as will Brussels sprouts. But kale are a, a continuous pick. Um, broad beans... Uh, though you haven't got a lot of area there, so you don't get the same amount of production as you do from uh, a regular uh, picked item. Um, those are the things I'll be looking at. You might get an early crop of radishes out as an undercrop um, because they'll be in and out before you get too much of a cold spell. Um, carrots, 
not a lot of room again but you can get a little strip of carrots in there and um, if they're up in time they stay in the garden uh, same with onions uh, but you with onions you've got to grow them in the heat and pick them in the cold and you've probably run out of heat already although you might get some small onions in so i'd be looking at that type of diversity uh, take advantage of that thermal mass take advantage of that sun angle uh, gain a bit of extra growing season with the uh, covers of glass or or plastic um, and um, you should be absolutely fine um, and um, you might get a crop of beans up the side of the veranda as well and add some more diversity silver beet swiss chard you might get some of that through as well um, european spinach um, it's all looking pretty leafy and green really um, but that's what you're going to get with your full winter garden in your location, I reckon. Okay, have fun. So the question I'm taking today, and I, I will throw some ideas about season extension into it because I think that it, it's part of what I'm thinking up in, in regard to this question. But this comes from Jason, and Jason says, If you were starting a new homestead from scratch, what would be some of the features you would build into the house outbuildings during construction uh, notice that was a very specific question i understand what jason's asking this is the way to ask your questions as me or the expert counsel because now i'm going to give you the details but you'll notice that jason started out with a one word question i'm going to start a new homestead what features would you build into houses and outbuildings done details uh, i have a long-term plan to purchase 10 to 20 acres in the next few years and start working and paying playing Uh, on with the goal of eventually building a homestead there. There are some stylist workshop outbuilding ideas that I have in mind, but I wanted your opinion since you've built uh, out a couple of homesteads already, hindsight being 2020, what do you wish the original builder would have built in? Uh, maybe a mudroom, a uh, shower off the garage, easy cleanup, maybe even an outdoor shower for those nice days, built-in basement, concrete, uh, gun closet, things like that. I love the show you've made an ant out of me, Jason. Uh, Jason, so I'm going to start off with kind of tying back into the other thing. I love the idea of a greenhouse attached to a structure. I have almost no place on this property where it makes sense to do that. If I was building a house here, the, actually the direction my home is facing is there's, it's not the, the front of the house faces south. And, and in many ways, that could be very good. However, I might have flipped the floor plan around so that you maybe came in through the kitchen, and then maybe it would have made more sense to have you know a, a greenhouse outside that, that front side of the house or, or something like that. I probably would have set the property or the house a little further back on the property so that I wouldn't have had to argue with my wife, well, that doesn't really look good having that thing there, right? Um, uh, outbuildings, additionally, there's there, the, the way the outbuildings are laid out, I completely understand why the homeowner that built this place did everything they did. It, 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 when you look at it from a standpoint of a conventional mindset, there's nothing dumb about it, there's nothing ridiculous about it, it all makes perfect sense. But then when you think, boy, I'd, I'd like to have a greenhouse attached to one of these structures. And you just realize, like, there's not a good place to do that. It just doesn't exist. It, it's not just that it wouldn't really work well. It wouldn't look right. So you can add on to a house. You can make it bigger. If you really want to do something stupid, you can add a floor to it. 
right? That's like usually the worst. Like it usually costs more to add a new floor, make a one-story into a two-story, than it costs to tear the house down and completely rebuild it as a two-story. But you can do it. You can do all kinds of things with a house. I have not yet seen a house other than a mobile home that you can pick up and t rotate it or pick it up and move it 20 more feet back or three feet from this thing or... I would really put a huge amount of thought when building a new property into the location of the buildings themselves before I even worried about what goes in the buildings. I would come at the standpoint of water access structure. This is the primary way we evaluate a property through the permaculture lens. So where is water on the property? Where could water be on the property? And how will water flow through the property? I want to get that assessment in. Then I want to get access. How will I get to all of the places on the property? Where is the contour line that makes sense to put a road in? You know, a dirt road. If you're not going to pave a road, it becomes even more important. Where might culverts go, et cetera? How will those culverts drain into? And where will the where are the structures? And where will the structures be? And if you take that approach, you're going to you're going to have the forethought to not make a type 1 error. And a type 1 error is an error that you regret making from the day you made it for the rest of your life because it's difficult, if not impossible, to change. So that's where I would come from. Now, tying this back into the last question Jake had, that allows you to construct a greenhouse against a proper wall, one that makes sense. And I don't think there is a better way to extend your ability to feed yourself than to be able to do that. And I don't think there's a more comforting thing um, than on a cold winter's day to be able to walk outside of your house but yet still be contained in this beautiful glass house and have plants all around you, maybe some of them tropical, maybe a water feature or two and water trickling, and be warm and in the sun. That has such a lifestyle quotient to it. It is such a huge thing. If you've ever been, like, we have an arboreum here at the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens, and it's huge, bigger than, than I think, you know, unless you're, you're Scrooge McDuck or Bruce Wayne or something, bigger than any of us could ever afford to build. They have a coffee tree in there. A coffee tree. Yes, they're trees. They, they keep them as bushes, but they grow as, they have a coffee tree in there that's like 18 foot tall. <laughs> And it's like a one small piece of this. It's like huge. It's like a couple acres. But on, on winter days where I'm just fed up with winter, I'll go down there and pay the extra five bucks while I'm at the Botanical Gardens to go into that arboreum. And it's like recharging your batteries. And I just don't really have a way to do that, attach it to my home here and make it make sense. So I would really look at that. Like every place I have to do something like that, it's really not optimal. Even my sheds it's not optimal so i would really like, like that would be a thing that i would try to think about and the beauty is no matter what it's going to cost and how long it takes before you build that greenhouse if you put the house or the outbuilding that it's going to go on in the right place it's there when you're ready and you don't design yourself out of that another thing that i would really think about And I just had a question that I handled a couple weeks ago, and the gal came back to me and said she meant an actual basement. Designing the home to sit on a basement. I think that if, if, there, if you, could, you said, Jack, you have a magic wand, but it only does one of two things for you here at your property that you currently own. 
You can wave that magic wand and a full basement the, the, on the footprint of your existing home will pop under your home and you'll have a basement. Or you can wave your wand and your house will be fixed so you can have an outdoor greenhouse and it'll look nice and your wife will like it. I would take the basement. After everything I just said, I would take the basement. I would have, I would, I would not completely double my square footage because I do have a portion of the house as a second story, but I would put about 40, 35 to 40% increase in my square footage. And from the outside of the house, nothing would change. I would have a space that's safe during storms. I would have a space that's temperature stable. I could put a huge office down there and open up this room that I'm in right now as whatever we wanted it to be. Uh, it would be a great place for brewing and making meads. It, 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 and again, it would be temperature stable and storm safe. So I would really look at the house itself or as a trade-off, if you had a reason you couldn't do it at the house, one of the outbuildings having a basement. Um, I would really think about where the outbuildings are in relation to the home. A lot of times with outbuildings, people want to put them way out in the back 40. I want all my infrastructure close to each other, and I want to design purpose into the footprint. So that actually works pretty well here, the way that the homeowner put things. Uh, we have purpose in our footprint. We designed, we retrofitted the design back into it. But if I had it from the beginning, I would be thinking, okay, so if this is going to be my house and this is going to be, let's say, a garage, and I'm also going to put in something that's an independent, let's say, workshop, which is kind of the setup that I have here, how do I tie in the pathways between those to make sense and then consider that in the overall location? With outbuildings, if you have the money, a concrete slab, insulated steel frame structure is almost impossible to beat on a bang for the buck etc it's something that you know there's contractors that's what they do it's the only thing they do it's not the cheapest way to put something in but when you hire someone that, that does it for a living you can go look at one that they did you know a couple months ago and see that they do it right they show up they pour the slab that building goes up and that building will stand for a long long time That's what I have here. It was one of the, like, the things that I'm lamenting, the one of the things that I don't ever lament are those two outbuildings. Could I have maybe changed the way they're laid out? I don't actually think I could have with the house already here. Again, there's things I would have done differently if this was a blank slate position of the house, orientation, things like that. But once the house was here, where they put those makes perfect sense. They are one of the biggest assets that I have. So for outbuildings, I would look at steel frame buildings if you can afford it and concrete floors. Um, I would make sure that you plan for wiring, electricity, etc. And if you're going to be building, go, I mean, we had a question about this recently. Go ahead and lay some underground worthy data cable from the home out to those outbuildings because the thing about the steel outbuildings is they do knock down signal pretty hard. So I would, I would look at that as well. Mudroom, I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, we don't really have a way to retrofit one into what we're doing here. Our pantry kind of sort of woodwork is one, but we don't really use it as that. Um, we do have a nice big outdoor porch area now that you know, boots can come off and things like that. Uh, I love mudrooms. We had one in Pennsylvania. Houses are kind of 
built with that mindset in the Northeast because of the way things are in the spring and in the fall and in you know the warm days of winter that come in between. Uh, so definitely uh, a mudroom. Uh, outdoor shower, um, I think, is a fine idea. I, I don't know how much use you'll really get out of it, though, unless you have some way to warm the water a little bit. Because even you know, in the nice time of year here, outdoor shower is pretty cold. I don't know, maybe you like it, maybe it's up to you. I was in the Army, um, and when I was on my first field training exercise, I remember the drill sergeants telling us how cold the showers were going to be, and it was worse than I expected. Uh, but after three days in the field, you'll, you'll wash with whatever you got. And I remember Drill Sergeant Irby told us, men, when you get older, you'll think back to these days, and every once in a while you'll go in your bathroom and turn the cold water on and take a cold shower just to remember what it did for you. Yeah, that's about the only thing that man told me that was a lie. I have never felt the need to do that ever again, uh, and, and the only way I ever will is because I'm in the same type of situation where I don't have a choice. Uh, so, you know, think about if you're going to do an outdoor shower, maybe having a rain catch tank that sits and gets some sun, kind of warms that water up, use that for your outdoor shower, drain that into your beds, things like that. The, the, the real thing I think about... Um, though, is really drilling down on what you want. Because whatever ideas I put out there, in the end, it's what you want. It's what you want in your life. And if you have the opportunity to design a place from the ground up, literally, then you should design your life first. Sit down, and I think this is a good thing apart from homesteads. Design the life you want. Sit down and say, if I won the lottery and I got enough money where it really doesn't matter anymore, after I got done partying or riding around in a limo or giving my boss the finger or whatever it is you would do, okay, um, and then I sat down in my life and I could wake up the way I wanted to every day and live the way that I wanted to every day and do the things that I wanted to do every day, what would that day look like? And, and I don't think it's going too far if you really want to get your head into this right. Sit down and write a story in first person. I woke up and, you know, down to I went out and made my coffee, and then I went out on my porch and I walked on my property and I made a phone call to whom? And write your perfect day. Not your perfect day on vacation. Your perfect day that is your every day. And figure out what that is. Because that could be used then to design a lifestyle business or design a homestead. Or design a plan to get there. See, it doesn't matter then. This is how we actually do lifestyle design. We come up with the destination. Like if someone said to you, I want you to plan a trip. Okay. Well, do I get to pick where I'm going? No. Oh, I don't get to pick up. No, I'll tell you where to go. Okay, great. Where am I going? Well, I'll tell you after you design the tr design the trip. What would you say? No, I'm not going to. That doesn't make sense. I have, I have I, there's no there's no way I could plan that. If you tell me I'm I'm, I'm going to be taking a trip to Philadelphia, and, and I know that I live in in the Fort Worth area like like Jack does, I have a certain way that I'm going to design that trip. But if I'm going to Los Angeles, I'm going to design that trip entirely differently. If I'm going to Hawaii, I need a plane or a boat. Can't do it in my car. Not going to happen. If I'm going to Russia, I need a passport, among other things. 
So we figure out where is it do we want to be, and that doesn't matter if it's designing the homestead. Where do we want the homestead to be? We design our life. Where do we want our life to be? And then we write the story that is the result to be sure this is what we really want. And then we tick off the boxes to figure out what does the schedule look like to get there. We're charting a course like a captain at sea then. And this is a much more intelligent way to design things than to do this because this guy did it and it looked cool. You know, and then, then you reality check that with budget and a realistic timeline, what you're going to contract, what you're going to do yourself, and then understand no, no battle plan survives 100% after contact with the enemy. And if you do that, I think you'll end up with a pretty spot-on plan and one that you can easily adjust for as reality on the ground changes. Those are my thoughts on that question. Jason, thank you very much for it. I thought it was an excellent question. Brings us to the end of yet another podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Many thanks to all of you that send questions, comments, suggestions in for the show, including those that don't get on air. Remember, I pay attention every email that comes to me I at least look at except for the ones that tell me I need Viagra or something like that. All the emails that come from you guys at TSPC and the subject line, I look at them. A lot of times I share them. A lot of times they shape the narrative of the following week, even if I don't actually specifically cover them. They might change how I interpret something else. You guys are incredible, and I appreciate all of you for, for being part of this community and part of this show. If you like the work that I do and you want to support it, one of the ways to do that is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. To become a member of the MSB, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about how you can sign up. But for about 18.3 cents per episode, you can support this show uh, annually uh, at about 50 bucks. And then there's discounts to like 70 companies. I promise you, out of those 70, there'll be a handful that you will be happy to do business with uh, every year, at least a handful. You add up that handful of discounts, you get your 50 bucks back. I mean, everybody that actually makes the effort to use the discounts and figures out what works in their life out of those group of people that I talk to says, I don't get my money back. I make money on this. I'm a customer for life. I'd like you to be, I'd like you to consider becoming a customer. And then if it works, become one for life. And I say this often. If you, anybody ever signs up for MSB, and I don't care if it's a month later, you just decide, I don't really think this is worth it. Email me. I'll give you your money back. I have never refused to, uh, to refund somebody that's asked in a reasonable timeline. I have had people say, like, oh, I joined in January, and uh, then it renewed, and I didn't know it renewed. And now it's it's like, you know, November. And, like, so they renewed eight, nine months ago, and they want to refund. And usually I don't do that. I've only had a couple people do that. I'm just like... You know, I, after 60 days, it costs me money to refund you. It's not just giving you your money back. Um, so within 60 days, generally, anybody that asks, just you can have your money back. So it's a low-risk way to try the MSB because it always is. So check it out today at survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. And uh, additionally, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or first responder, uh, active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a discount. Just put TSPC service discount. Uh, in the subject line of your email, email it to me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Give me a one sentence on your service, and I will send you a discount code to join at an even better rate. However, please do that before, not after you join. I don't retroactively discount. It's 
complicated. I'll leave it at that. The other way you can help support us is by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. tspaz.com. And uh, the item of the day that I have for you today is Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. I've talked about this thing over and over and over. I've probably brought this product back around since the first time uh, that I, I brought it to you, which would have been all the way back in July of 2016. So over two years now, I brought this thing around probably a dozen times. You know why? Because it works. It works so wonderfully well on so many things. I first found this. You know, I was big on making my own comfrey ointment, and I had run out. And I had a knee injury, and I seriously strained the MCL and the LCL in the same knee, opposite caddy corner from each other. I could not bear any weight. I could not lift my leg off the ground and hold the weight of the leg up without being in excruciating pain. I started applying this to my knee. I did not have time to go make new comfrey ointment for myself. And I started slathering my knee with this. And within a week, I was off crutches and on a cane. And then another week, I was off a cane and on a knee brace. And another knee, uh, week, I was walking fairly normal. Um, and this is an injury that a doctor looked at and said, you're going to have no choice but to have surgery on this knee. My knee is just as good today as it was before that injury ever happened, and I personally attribute it to the Dr. Christopher's complete tissue and bone. And it works on abrasions. It works on rashes. My daughter-in-law, after she had my granddaughter Tegan a couple of years ago, she had post-pregnancy hormones going nuts, and she was almost in tears with the rashes that she was breaking out in. They were over the house. I suggested try a little bit of this on one spot of the rash to make sure you don't have a, you know, some kind of reaction to it. And it, it immediately helped. So once they realized that, they went ahead and put it everywhere she was having a rash. And within 15 minutes, she was calm and happy again. I gave them a tub of it and said, use this through this. Uh, I've seen you know, ant bites that don't want it. There's so many things. And I've heard from so many of you guys that had you know, bruises and aches and torn muscles and stuff that have used this. So not only did it help me heal, uh, it also relieves pain. And it does. It's not just comfrey. It's got a whole laundry list of really good stuff in it, like skull cap and some other things. It works great. It's affordable. We're never without it. Like, whenever we open a, the tub and we look and we're getting near the bottom of a tub of this stuff, we just order some more, even though there's a full one. So when there's always a full one on the thing, there's one that's being used, and when that one that's being used looks like it's going to be empty soon, we order another full one and keep it in rotation. I don't even make comfrey ointment anymore. I got comfrey everywhere since the, the big duck flock left. And this stuff works so good and it's so reasonably priced. This is what we rely on. That's why I recommend it. Literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tubs of this stuff have been bought by the audience. And I've only heard good things back. And trust me, if I recommend something and people don't like it, I get the other kind of email. So this is not just Jack tested. This is a survival podcast community tested. And I think the total number of tubs when I looked it up was over a 1,000. And happy people... With this stuff, I can't say it treats or cures disease because the Department of Government sadness will make me sad. Um, you know how that, those rules work, but all I can tell you is when I've used it, it's worked for me. If you read the reviews on Amazon, it's fantastic. Again, it's called Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone. comes in a four-ounce tub. I recommend you have it as part of your homestead first aid. And that brings us to our song of the day. Now, we're doing REO Speedwagon Week this week, and... Uh, been a lot of t I've talked a lot about um, this band prior to Kevin Cronin. We've heard 
three songs this week, two of them without Kevin and one with, the very brief period in between uh, where he left and came back again. Now we're to where he finally comes back and he stays, and this band finds its sound and becomes the REO Speedwagon we know today. Because Wednesday got interrupted, I'm going to have the final song for the series on Monday. I hate when that happens. I like when we do a themed week. I like it to be themed that week, you know. Um, but it just happened that way. Actually, though, I think it worked out pretty well. Um, this song uh, is probably a better Friday song than the one that I'll have for you Monday anyway. It's called Keep Pushing On. Keep Pushing On is, is, is a great song. And what this song is really about, it's about learning to be alone so that you can, so that you can actually be good enough in, your, in yourself to be with somebody else. In other words, I mean, the, the, the opening line of the song gives it all to you. He says, I used to be lonely till I learned about living alone. And I, I personally would say in my relationship with Dorothy, the reason that it worked so well, and we've now been together uh, over 20 years, and we're not this year, but next year we'll be celebrating our 20th uh, marriage anniversary, is because we were both at a point where we're like, I don't need somebody I'd like somebody in my life. And I recently got an email from a gal that wanted me to do an answer on air about how to find a, a kind and genuine man. And I sent her an email back, and I, I'd hope to hear from her, because I thought, like, after I hear back, I can actually answer this question. Uh, but I didn't feel she was ready for the answer yet. But I sent her an, an answer that by, by email, and I didn't mean to be mean, but I, I, know, I said I know this isn't what you want to hear, but... And it was, you have to fix yourself first. She was talking about how bad all the men she meets are. They're addicted to porn. They don't have a future, etc. And then all the men that are in the third, you know, early 30s are all in this one group. And I'm like, that is not the truth. You're seeing what you expect to see. You probably had a bad relationship with somebody like this. So you're seeing that in people because you're attracting those kinds of people. And additionally, you're seeing it in people when it doesn't apply to them they have a characteristic that you're associating with this behavior. So if you fix yourself, then you'll attract the type of people you want to be with. And that's a big part of what this song's about. Push through your own life, and then you can be there for someone else. And I think that's true, and I think it's a great lesson. I think it's one that a lot of young people really need to learn. A lot of older people need to learn that still don't understand this. Anything else you end up with is a codependent relationship. But moving beyond the Dr. Phil analysis of this song here, let's look at it in a broader view of life. Now, this is why I think it's a great Friday song. This is the advice to get wherever you want to be in the world, in any walk of life, whether it's a homestead, a business, getting out of debt, keep pushing on. Whatever gets in your way, push it out of the way, go over it, dig a hole in it, blow it up, do, keep, keep going. Just keep going. And don't worry about what you don't have. Worry about what you do have and making the most of that. And what you're seeking, you will find simply by pushing on. What a great message for a Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.